Hi everyone, Gil Gross here. Welcome to Monday Match Analysis Classics. Today's episode is a conversation with Ben Rothenberg. He's a freelance tennis writer for the New York Times and co-host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. Ben and I get into one of his favorite matches of all time, the 2009 Wimbledon final between Andy Roddick and Roger Federer. A couple of housekeeping items until uh, before, rather, before I get started. One, uh, a trigger warning, Novak Djokovic has had an up and down week, and uh, I felt the need to get into Djokovic's recent comments about anti-vaccination, so uh, if you're sensitive to that topic, know it's coming. You can skip ahead to where we start talking about the match, or you can skip this all together, but uh, I'll give you a trigger warning for that. Also, to address the uh, lack of diversity that's just happened as a coincidence, uh, I let the guests choose what match they want to go over, and it just so happens three three in a row have been from 2009, two in a row have been with Roger Federer, so just know that I'm going to effort to get some more diversity coming your way. So for the Djokovic folk and the Nadal folk, uh, just, uh, just know that there will uh, be coverage of your favorite players coming very soon. And uh, lastly, I plan on doing another Q&A on Wednesday. So keep an eye um, on the community tab on the main tab of my channel and also on my Twitter, at Gil Gross, uh, where you will have an opportunity to submit your questions and comments for our Wednesday Q&A. Without further ado, here's Ben Rothenberg. We're joined for the first time by Ben Rothenberg, a freelance tennis writer for the New York Times and co-host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. Ben, how are you? Thanks for doing this. I'm very good. Very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. This is uh, this should be fun. Yeah, everything is good with you in the uh, in the quarantine life and all that. Yeah, so far so good. Uh, it's, it's already yeah, it's like more than a month into it now, and uh, it's been going fine. You know, it's. Uh, Feels, all feels pretty low stakes in some ways. You know, there's not much to do each day. So when something like this comes along, I'm uh, happy to jump on it and get, you know, projects to do. So this is good. Absolutely. You strike me as a, as a man of good taste. Any tennis <laughs> quarantine content recommendations, Ben? Uh, I honestly have not been doing too much, like, rewatching of things. I've not been watching Tennis Channel or what they're re-airing or doing too many deep dives. I've been reading a few books. The one book that we're doing next, I'll, I'll plug NCR a bit here, but we're doing Next on No Challenges Remaining is this book from 1990 by John Feinstein called Hard Courts, which is about the tour in the year 1990. And that's a, it's a dense, but good read. It's a good quarantine filler. It's like 450 pages of small font about tennis uh, 30 years ago. So yeah, people were looking for something that will take up time and also be uh, enjoyable. I like it. It's pretty good. Well, yeah. What's the, f what's your favorite evergreen piece you've ever written? Oh gosh. Um, evergreen. I, I, I like a few, few things I've got to do that are longer. I spent more time doing, obviously I'm more attached mm -hmm. to probably a couple of things I've done for racket magazine, uh, whether yep. it's about, uh, court siding. I did something, I did something on Monique Vealy, who was a super hyped prodigy who got wrapped up with Donald Trump and also just a weird stuff there in the late nineties. Uh, I did one on the, um, those are the main ones. I'll stick with those those two answers, I guess, for now. Yeah. All right. Check, check those out, everyone. Um, <laughs> so we're going to get into the 2009 Wimbledon final, Roger Federer, Andy Roddick. But just before we do that, it's been a wild week for Novak Djokovic. The beginning, you know, the first thing that comes through the news cycle is that he's setting up this relief fund 
for, uh, for lower ranked players. And that's obviously a, a really positive story. And I, I would say everyone kind of took that really well. And then uh, a more controversial, to put it kindly, development that just broke uh, last night is that he kind of said that he, he would be opposed to being forced to uh, have a coronavirus vaccination. It's a little bit unclear if he's just umbrella anti-vax or if he's anti-coronavax, but I mean, Ben, what, what was your reaction to that? I th to, the, to your second point first, I do think that the most straightforward reading of it was that he started out saying that he's sort of umbrella anti-vax and then went more specific on potentially having mandatory travel vaccines uh, for coronavirus, which would fit into the umbrella statement at the start. Um, but also it, it's, he's saying that he's against a vaccine that hasn't even been invented yet. So right. that seems like a pretty blanket statement. Like you're against a vaccine that we don't even know anything about yet. It does not exist yet. So it seems to be a, a fairly straightforwardly, you know, clear ideological position that's not just about one specific product or invention or concept or whatever. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things like people who follow Djokovic are not super surprised by this um, just because he has had such uh, a specific and interesting rejection of a lot of sort of standardly held medical beliefs in Western medicine theory and, you know, generally accepted things. He's been pretty contrarian on a lot of stuff um, and believes a lot of things and says a lot of things that have helped him, you know, when it all the way back to his gluten allergy, uh, when that's, that's sort of when the first sort of side of this of Djokovic came out. Um, and he had, you know, sort of crazy stories in his book about how they tested his allergy by holding a piece of bread against his skin and he started to feel weak. I mean, that's just, there's sort of odd, you know, things in there. And he's talked about, you know, more recently about his reluctance to have surgery because it feels like the body should be able to heal itself um, and things like that. So, I mean, Djokovic is kind of on going to his completely own drummer on, uh, on health issues generally. And so, yes, yeah, so this was, if a top player was going to say this, this was the least shocking top player to say it. Um, but still, it, it's been interesting to see how this has been a story that's already broken up outside of tennis. And part of this, that is, I think, that a lot of molehills are going to turn into mountains in quarantine time because there's so little news in sports that if this happened, if you made this statement, you know, during a normal sports cycle in a normal month of April when there's playoffs going on in sports and other things, maybe it wouldn't have quite the resonance it has. But this has been a big story on a lot of news networks. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's something that I hope that he can clarify. I know we've reached out to him for a comment at the New York Times and, and to his team and uh, other places as well, I'm sure, are doing that also. Um, and, you know, the, but I think that it would take a pretty I, – I don't, I don't share the Djokovic fan's reluctance with the quote that was shared by Reuters. I think that was a Serbian reporter translating it from the Serbian and made it seem pretty straightforward. Um, I think that they're just sort of searching for ambiguity that I don't think is really there, honestly. Uh, I'll share one of my takes and feel free to disagree with me, but yeah. it, it's one thing if a public uh, official says something like this or someone of, of actual maybe legislative importance says this, but when a, when a professional yeah. athlete says something along these lines that could actually you know, be damaging to public health, and I, I don't agree with anti-vax sentiment, I'm willing to say that. Why sure. should that be published? I mean, is it irresponsible to even publish this? I don't think that this oh. should be a story. 
But he said it in a public forum. I mean, he's, right. it's not like this was a private conversation that he was having. This was a public, publicly broadcast thing in Serbian to a Serbian audience. I don't know how many people were watching, but mm-hmm. it was something he had shared, I think, on his social media that he was going to be doing this this broadcast with these other Serbian athletes. So, I mean, it's already out there. I don't have a problem necessarily with Reuters then for translating this. I don't think that's really their role to sort of suppress that once it's out there. And the stakes of having it be a public figure, for, I mean, it's obviously less damaging if he says this versus if, you know, uh, Anthony Fauci says this or someone who's, you know, in a trusted position of health or even someone who's a politician who maybe has more authority. But there are still anti-vax people. And I'm not an expert on the anti-vax movement at all. But uh, there are still anti-vax people like Jenny McCarthy, I know, is one of them, uh, who's, a you know, an actress or a TV host or whatever she calls herself as a public figure. And, uh, you know, her having a platform from that other status can amplify these views, which can cause people harm. And I think that that Djokovic, if he is indeed expressing the anti-vax sentiment that he seems to be, is a general blanket thing. Um, yeah, if he has people who listen to him and look, a lot of fans are sort of, cont- some of his fans are not. A lot of his, I've seen several of his fans being like, this is, this is rough, I can't defend this. Um, but others of his fans are saying, you know, oh, he's just being misunderstood. Or they're going all the way to saying, yes, vaccines are bad, clearly. And who knows if they would have actually said that if Djokovic hadn't said it or not, how much they're just following their role model. So that's where it becomes a, a, a potentially dangerous thing. Yeah, when a number one player in the world, best player in the world right now, uh, is, is sort of using his platform to espouse such, uh, such beliefs. Sure. Uh, so let's get to this match. I gave you a list of, uh, of options, Ben, and you were uh, particularly enthusiastic. We can't seem to get out of 2009, by the way. I've done this with a few other Good people. year. Yeah, good year, yeah, though. A really good year. So what stood out about, about this match? Why did you want to go back and watch it? The options you gave me, it was definitely – I mean, first of all, I would have picked it out of a longer list, I bet, also, because this is one of the matches I remember having the strongest reaction to watching it live and just being the most sort of affected by the outcome of it and really living and dying with this match and feeling like I died at the end of this match a little bit. <laughs> Uh, pulling mostly for Andy Roddick as I was uh, when this match was going on. Definitely for Andy Roddick, 100% for Andy Roddick during this match. And uh, not that I disliked Federer, but just re- say, we can get into this, but the stakes were so different for these two guys in this match, even if Federer didn't totally seem to get that in the trophy ceremony. Um, and yeah, and it was also just a match that was, I think, one of those times where it was two very different people with different careers in this way that most big four matches just don't play that way for me I mean big four versus big four where you know even Murray to the extent once once Murray got on the board Murray was still so after 2012 Murray had already won his slam and I guess Wimbledon 2013 he got his next slam fairly quickly Wimbledon was his missing thing as a British player but you know th- this was a match where like these are two guys in very different stages of their careers it felt like with very different stakes with different things going for them and it was really the last and it was sort of the end of an era in a lot of ways I mean I think Andy Roddick represented an old school sort of player or sort of figure on tour in a way that these sort of immortals of the big four don't. And so this was sort of the last battle of those earlier mortals versus these like current immortals. And it's cra- it was crazy to me thinking watching this match that, you know, a lot of people would have been phrasing, could have easily thought at the time, oh yeah, Roddick, uh, sorry, Federer comes back and is, you know, after losing a tough final, which a lot of people thought, you know, it was a passing of the torch to Nadal. He comes back and wins one more and good for him for getting one more. But like 10 years later, he's still getting championship points in the Wimbledon final. Like he didn't go away at all. This is like mid-career or early mid-career, depending on how you want to call it, Federer, uh, which is nuts that, that, that these guys have kept going. And that's, sort of, that's what one of the interesting, this is a different topic, but like one of the reasons why like Federer and Nadal 08, I feel like is a, was a much 
has not aged to feel particularly important now because both those guys are still so relevant and still on top of the game 12 years later. Like kind of that match didn't change everything, in my opinion, that 08 match. Even though at the time it really felt like a real end of an era, new takeover. Like they're both still great 12 years later. So, yeah, but with Roddick, this was Roddick's last Grand Slam final, his last real shot at getting – uh, one of the four things he'd always wanted. He talked in his career pretty openly about how he had four goals coming in. He wanted to win the U.S. Open, to become number one, to win Davis Cup, and to win Wimbledon. And he got three of the four by then, and this was his best shot at getting the fourth. And he it uh, eluded him despite many, many close calls in this match. Right. To, to your point about Federer, I have a quote from Pete Sampras. Uh, he said, yeah, you know, I mean, he's a great player talking about Federer. He's got 15 now. He could get 17, 18 majors when it's all done. Try again, Pete. You were a little low there, <laughs> even on, your, on the end of your, uh, of your range. But certainly for Roddick, he had won the 2003 U.S. Open. Uh, did not w- – uh, well, since, the, since that slam final that he was successful in, he had been in three finals, lost all three of them to Roger Federer. So yeah. this is, again, bumping into Federer, a guy who was 18-2. and two head-to-head against Roddick. It really seemed like Roddick was in a group of players whose careers were just destroyed by the existence of Roger Federer. 100%. And, and Roddick would have won, I think, at least, because not just the finals, but a bunch of semifinals and quarterfinals where he also lost to Roddick. Sorry, where Roddick also lost to Federer. Uh, I think Fed, Rod, Fed, Roddick could have comfortably had five slams without Federer there, uh, at least. And you know, never know how things could shift. Maybe it's even more. Maybe he gets even more confident. Maybe other players step up and can figure Roddick out if Federer doesn't come to suck up all the oxygen on the tour uh, in sort of what was Roddick's prime. Uh, Roddick won his first slam after Federer won his first slam. It was one slam later in 03. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, and finished that year number one, I believe, in 2003. So he did have his shots. It wasn't like total takeover. And I actually was at the match, the last match they ever played in Miami 2012, which uh, Roddick won, kind of funnily enough. It was they, Roddick in this very lopsided rivalry got the last got the last sort of laugh there. But yeah. It, it, didn't, it, it he, was... didn't he propose to, to his uh, wife, Brooklyn, before that match? Oh, that I don't remember. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, I, I saw that on possibly. Wikipedia. And uh, Okay, maybe. Wikipedia is usually right about things, funnily enough. Usually, I mean, usually. I mean, not as a joke. They usually are pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. The other thing I'll say about Sampras, you mentioned him. Like, it's wild that this was a big, big passing the torch moment, like finally getting over Sampras. And now, uh, 11 years later, Sampras is like distant fourth place <laughs> on this list. He's not no longer right. on the podium of most men's Grand Slams. And... It's just funny that how how quickly that shifted, um, how quickly Sampras uh, and and I would put Roddick in sort of the Sampras lane of player, you know, being an American who is, has a big weapon, or big weapons and big serve is not mm-hmm. um, not an all surface player, uh, which is what everybody is now. Sampras was not an all surface player. Roddick was not an all surface player, and they were aggressive guys. And yeah, that's they're sort of it's interesting that they're at the end of an era. And Roddick says in his speech, sort of says to Pete, you know, sorry, I couldn't, you know, hold off the record for you a little bit. And it does really feel like they were as part of the same, same breed. And this is, this is that kind of, that kind of uh, breeds last real hurrah in a lot of ways. Yeah. A grand slam final stage for sure. Well, that's where I want to start with, with Sampras. Uh, Federer looking to win his 15th slam to, to pass Pete and Pete's late to the match. So <laughs> yes, it's at two one, the first changeover when they finally uh, let in Pete and, 
if he was on time, he wouldn't have had this dramatic grand entrance. But I almost wonder if that was intentional. I almost wonder if it was intentional because because BBC showed him. And Wimbledon is an interesting place in that it's very quiet because so like people yes. will like will also will just sort of gawk at the royal box and will like look and see who's there. Oh, like oh look, you know, Will and Kate are there. Oh, hey, look, that lady from Great British Bake Off is there. Whatever you know, British celebrities happen to be there on that day. Um, and so maybe they thought that Pete would get a real because also at, at Wimbledon they wouldn't be like oh, what should they do at the U.S. Open? They would show in the jumbotron or they would have an announcement like, ladies and gentlemen, Pete Sampras. And everyone would cheer, be more directed. At Wimbledon they kind of have to do it subtle and just hope that everyone notices this one man walking to his seat, uh, which did not. They, and the announcer actually I did notice that part. The announcer said like, oh wait, there's me a big applause here, you know, for this. There really wasn't. I don't think that many people were looking at that, especially because I mean, people do get to their seats on time. At it's Wimbledon. a bit of a reaction. A bit of a reaction, but not like not like it would have been if it had been actually been like on the screen, yeah. you know, and it'd been like a little, you know, a Chiron that was like, uh, you know, Federer trying to equal Sampras's record like it would be at the US Open or at the other three slams, honestly. They would have made it much more apparent what it was there, but Wimbledon loves being subtle. Yes. Federer said hello to him. Sampras was front row. Uh, in the in the royal box, which is obviously just beyond um, the far baseline, if you're watching on TV, and Federer actually said hello to that, hello to Pete. D- does that surprise you? Uh, you know, if they they've knew each other, I think they'd already done. I don't know if they had already done their their EXO tour by then. They probably had. They did this EXO tour uh, with each other. I forget what mm-hmm. year that was, but they knew each other pretty well. And you know, it and you are close people at tennis match. I mean, some people are very tunnel vision and and not attracted by the crowd. Other people. Nick Kyrgios, very far into the spectrum, will like talk to people in the front row of the crowd and engage and kind of banter with them. Uh, you know, so yeah, not shocking that he would just say hello because, you know, you don't want to be awkward for four hours and pretend like you don't see the guys there. When you see the guys there, just yeah. be chilling. They hide to beat Sampras. Why not? Just being polite. Uh, five, six in the first set. Um, Federer is serving. There are no breaks up until this point. And uh, a couple of really strong baseline points from Roddick where he, he hits a strong counter backhand down the line to draw an error and then another uh backhand down the line so oh you know the first one was a cross-court backhand but uh the point is Roddick's backhand normally a weakness yeah. was really good throughout this match and really he good steals yeah. the first set with it well because even bef- in the five ga- five all game before that he had saved a bunch of break points Federer really made his push in a very Sampras fashion Sampras would always kind of lollygag through a set and then like once he came within a game of winning a set he would really put the put the burners on and try to try to get a break uh so sam uh, federer put up his fight at five all and didn't break through and had a bit of a letdown game arguably in the next game and, and roddick really pounced and roddick did not have any let up yeah and the backhand was good throughout the match a lot of backhand down the line winners you wouldn't normally associate mm-hmm. with roddick and the federer i think really didn't see coming because he played like you said he played uh roddick 20 times before this so he knew the patterns that would work for him even even on grass knowing that that's that Roddick was playing well and that's one thing we should point out too Roddick was having a very good 09 he was a bit mm-hmm. rejuvenated in his career it was a different look Roddick I think he'd lost a little bit of weight he was playing a little bit more all court than he had been recently he had a really good run at Wimbledon to get to this final beating Leighton Hewitt in five in the quarters and beating Andy Murray in four in the uh in the semis which is a big upset really uh, people did not expect Andy Roddick to win that match so yeah so I think that maybe Sam uh, sorry <laughs> Oh, it's great. It's confusing. Uh, uh, Federer was a bit confused by seeing, uh, or a bit, probably a bit not expecting Roddick to do exactly what he did game-wise. And uh, yeah, and Roddick pounced early. And, and then, yeah, in second set, uh, uh, yeah, we can get to the second set tiebreak next. I think it's the next big event. Sure. But, like, it's probably, uh, that, that's where yeah, we're going. And then, 
And then Roddick getting all the way to six. I had forgotten just how big the lead was in the tiebreak before. I knew he had a lead in the tiebreak. I knew he had set points in the tiebreak, yep. but I did not remember that it was 6-2. Yikes. 6-2. Yeah. Which goes fast. I mean, that's only two points yeah. on your serve. In the first one, it would be probably better for him if he'd had consecutive points on his serve, if he'd been mm-hmm. not serving at 6-2 and had the 6-3 the and the 6-4 six six points on his serve. But, yeah, yeah. it was uh, rough. To, to your point about Roddick being a little bit rejuvenated, one more notice that he did have a new uh, coach, Larry Stefanke, yeah, yeah. Uh, who we introduced. Uh, but, yeah, this second set, look, I mean, neither player, and this persists throughout the match, neither player is really putting a lot of returns in play. The uh, first serve, one per- percentage on both sides is routinely, like, around 90%. So, uh, again, another tie break. But yeah, Roddick goes up 6-2 in this tiebreak. So Federer at 6-2 actually plays a really nice backhand cross court half volley from the baseline for a winner, a service winner at 3-6, an ace at 4-6. Now it's 6-5. This is Roddick's chance on serve, yeah. and he has it. It's, it's, it's right there. This and is the most famous point of the match. Yeah, yes. this is the most famous point of the match, and Roddick comes in. And I rewatched this this volley many times in this re- – I probably watched it five or six times to see, like, how bad is this miss. I, I don't think it's that bad. It was a very high volley. It was a backhand volley. I mean, like, it was a smart place to put the ball. I'm not 100% sure if the ball would have landed in. That's the other question I have because this ball was, again, pretty high. It might have had a lot of topspin and dove back in, but I'm not 100% sure. We'll never know uh, if that ball would have landed in or not. And, yeah, and, and Roddick's not known for being an amazing volleyer. Like, he's pretty good, but it was a kind of a wishful approach. It wasn't that great. That's the other thing I'll say about this match that also makes it stand out. You're talking about the serve percentages. Like, this is the last Wimbledon final, I think, between two, like, really, like, pure grass quarters playing, like – kind of old school what we yeah. think of as grass court tennis like because all the others since then would have involved either Murray Djokovic or Nadal or more than one of them and they're all like pretty strict baseliners and kind of counter punchers in their own way and that's not what's happening in Roddick and Federer at all they're both playing pretty aggressive uh grass court attacking tennis and so that but that's also why you know when I was take I wrote down when it got to five all in the, in the first set it took like 25 minutes to get there which is something you would so never see quick. in a match that's, that's involving yeah. any of those other three other guys. Yeah, the one thing I'll say about the volley is it didn't need to be very good. And I think that's the worst part about the volley is because mm. he, he didn't hit the strings. He shanked it. The, I think the reason why the volley was so ugly and, and startling is because he, you know, Federer was off the court. If, if Andy hit his strings on this, on this volley yeah. and put it in the court, I think it would have been good enough. I also just don't think he misses that shot if he hadn't missed three set points in a row leading up to it. I, I think the, the pressure and the nerves of having to be your fourth I out agree. of your of your quadruple set point is why that shot becomes much tougher. And, and you know, yes, it was not like an all-time bad miss. I really don't think so. It was not an easy shot. That was a tough passing shot that was hit. That's an awkward position. No one really hits great backhand bo- volleys high up there unless you're like, Ed you know, uh, Ed Berg or like Suzanne Loglon or someone who's always like <laughs> jumping and twirling up there. That's not what Roddick ever did. Uh, you know, so yeah, it was, it was, a, it was not the worst miss. It, it obviously came at a crucial point. Um, and we can argue whether or not that's the point that really swung the match. Well, it's only in the second set. So it's hard to say that. Right. And also we don't know, like if, and that's another big, what if that people are talking about after this match, if Roddick, wins that point and goes up two sets to none, does he automatically win this match? And I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's that simple. I think, you know, the year before, Federer had just come back from two sets down to force a fifth set against Nadal. 
yeah, whether it was everything, I kind of think that like, even though we'll get to these later, but even though he didn't have as clear a chance at them, like the break points he had in the fifth set were probably a lot closer to actually turning the match uh, to being a Roddick win. Yeah, I mean, to Roddick's credit, he did rebound pretty well. Um, besides going to the wrong side of the court after the uh, after he took a bathroom break at the tail end of uh, of the second set. Good catch, good catch. Yeah, but I mean, after that debacle, I mean, he really did uh, play some good tennis. It's another tiebreak in the third set, and and this was a much cleaner, uh, a really strong tiebreak from Federer. It would have been difficult for Andy to grab no. that. It was a little similar in that I think I remember seeing highlights of this match afterwards, uh, or mid-match highlights on the NBC broadcast, at least. And it was, again, Roddick's sort of, like, net play that got him in trouble. He missed, like, a, a sort of half-volley backhand chip thing, and I think in one all the tiebreak, or maybe 2-1, that put Federer up a pretty early mini-break in that third set tiebreak. And, yeah, it was kind of straightforward from there. It was a much less adventurous tiebreak than sure. the other one but so so then Roddick is 0-2 in tiebreaks which is wild because they've said in this match that he was 26-4 and in tiebreaks in 2009 coming into this final which is a crazy rate for anybody and then to go 0-2 in this final in tiebreaks is uh is pretty brutal. Tim Henman had a had a stat that Federer was 16-3 and in tiebreaks in Grand Slam finals so two excellent tiebreak players but the fourth set yeah. Roddick doesn't need one at 1-2 Federer serving uh, Roddick plays a really strong game, and again at 30-40, it's a two-shot pass on the backhand side. I think I think the kind of ball that Federer, when he played Roddick, was was used to winning, but Roddick was able to come up with the goods here and get the break. And again, I sort of point this to being a throwback kind of match. Like This is kind of how matches used to go more often, where a player would have a clear, weaker wing, and the opponent would know to attack that wing on big points. And go you know, to the and net. It'd be kind of Right. And it would kind of be, they would know, you know, okay, I'm going to make my money by hitting balls and big points and big moments to Andy Roddick's backhand, knowing that it'll be a good percentage play. And yes, maybe he'll make a couple, but overall, this is how I'll, I'll win matches. And that's one of the things that players talked about. I think I remember Agassi talking about this when Sampras is coming up. Sorry, Agassi talking about this when Federer is coming up. A lot of, a lot of players involved in this chat where he said like it was the first time he'd played an opponent where he didn't really feel like there was a safe space on the court, like a really clear pattern. And then obviously Nadal exploited Federer's backhand with great aplomb yes. for many years after that. But overall, I think those were um, pretty pretty clear patterns that uh, guys would use. And that sort of the, these big four guys were changing that where they didn't really have the, the sort of more lopsided games that Roddick represented. And so, yeah, so Roddick was, his backhand was holding up, which was kind of the story of this match in a lot of ways in terms of why it was competitive and why he was stable. And he also didn't get broken. That's the other thing we should say. Roddick does not get broken in this match yeah. um, until the very last game of the yes. match. And so, and that was the other big story, that, that he was saving all the break points in the match. Another, uh, another big point in this fourth set is at 4-2-30 all. 21-stroke rally, longest of the match. Federer not overly aggressive, didn't, wasn't really taking initiative. And uh, that was a big point that Roddick pulled through and held serve uh, for 5-2. Roddick takes the fourth set 6-3. Now we'll jump to the fifth. And, uh, you know, what, what did you think of the entertainment value of this fifth set? It doesn't have the tension it has, obviously, watching it live when you already know who, when you know exactly what the score is of the fifth set, it yeah. takes a lot of, it takes a bit of, the, it deflates it a bit. Um, and it, actually, to that point, like, kind of the first set, the first four sets were a little bit more, uh, just on re pure re rewatching talking about, a little more things. I didn't remember exactly when the fourth set Roddick broke. I didn't remember exactly when certain things happened. 
in the earlier sets. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, they were both playing well and it was pretty clean. And I like, you know, I'm someone as, you know, I'm not a big fan of best of five generally, as people will probably know, but I do like long final sets. I do think that they're really cool as an NHL fan. I love like an indefinite overtime and just having somebody have to wait it out and win that way. And um, that sort of no finish line in sight, that attrition era error, I think is really, really cool. And uh, this match did it well and, and did it pretty efficiently too. I mean, it wasn't a slog out there. The game has got pretty, pretty snappy for the most part in this fifth set. And uh, like you see, compared to the year before, there were some rain delays the year before in 08, but it finished nearly complete darkness that match uh, in 08. But 09, there was still plenty of, plenty of light left by the end of a set that was almost twice as long as the scoreboard. Right. It's funny because in with the new rules, this would have been a 14-all tiebreak. 12-all, yeah. A 12-all, excuse me, a 12-all yeah, yeah. tiebreak. And uh, what, what do you think? I mean, I, I like the 6-all. I think everyone should just do what the U.S. Open does. Uh, but this was a, an interesting match to watch because, you know, you, you kind of saw how it played out with, with the old traditional rules. Yeah, I, I don't like the – that's final set tie breaks. My favorite format in tennis is what the women used to play it, the three three grand slams, which is best of three and then no tie break final set. Just because I think that I don't know. I feel like when you're past six all in the final set, it's the best part of the match. Like why shorten that part of the match? It's sort of my whole take on that. And so I mean, like everyone was tuning into this match. You know, people. I don't know if this was kind of early Twitter. So I'm not sure how much Twitter was a factor at the 09 Wimbledon final. But people will be like, "Wow, tune into NBC. Like it's like 10 all. It's 11 all. This is crazy. Wow, I've never seen these numbers on a scoreboard before. This is awesome." Um, and those sort of things, I think, are moments that tennis uh, really benefits from. Even in the extreme examples, like one year later, there was Isner Mahout at Wimbledon, and you know that was obviously ridiculous going to 70 68, but it was also a major major story in the wider world that was on every news broadcast everywhere and it was a big story outside of tennis so those kind of that's a bit more freak show that scoreline but i do think that those longer matches really can become very captivating and the length was not crazy in this match I mean, the length was uh i think it finished like around four hours like 15 20 minutes something like that in the end right and and so it was not like that's shorter than a lot of you know matches like i'm sure like whatever Djokovic at all semi there was there a couple of years ago was longer than 420 so right yeah well the, the points were cert were uh were certainly pretty short for the most part Federer served 50 aces uh, I know that that was a career high at the time uh Roddick served 27 I'm sure that's it's still probably got to be a career high uh, although I'm not I don't know that for certain but I'm not sure with Rod Roddick hit, I mean that's the interesting thing also no 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 I, I of... meant I meant Federer's 50 is still a career high Just oh it could that could be that could be. I think that people, but also this, that's interesting that people talk about Roddick being all serve and he has half as many aces roughly as Federer yeah. in this match. And that shows how A, Federer's serve is really underrated and B, how well as smart a server Roddick is. I'm sure Roddick's number of unreturned serves is way higher than that. He doesn't always go for the clean, you know, blasted ace, but he can really set either set up a, a missed return or a one-two punch kind of uh, point pretty uh routinely. Body serve was huge in this match. It was a yeah. really good serve for Roddick, and that doesn't show up on the on the score sheet in the ace category. So uh, let's jump ahead to this game at fourteen fifteen. The end of the day, Federer gets six returns in play in this game and wins all six points. I mean, this wasn't a case, and and I think this is kind of what Federer could normally rely on a little bit when he played Roddick. It's not like he was getting every serve in play. It's just when yeah. he was, he, 
had an advantage. And in this match, Roddick was just up to the task until this last game. Yeah, no, I, I think it was just a, a war of attrition in a lot of ways in this last set. And Federer had gone through, gotcha, could do the math, but something roughly like uh, 30, 40, somewhere between 30 and 40 return games without breaking. And that could be bad for his morale. But also, you know, serving second, I think, is a rough thing for Roddick in this final set. Because the second that he gets down break point, and Roddick did have a couple break points earlier in the fifth set, I believe it ate all. He had two mm-hmm. break points, which with Federer hit pretty big serves and saved pretty quickly. Um, you know, it's a lot of pressure. This first time you face a break point, it is a championship point in the crowd. at Wimbledon does what it does on championship points, especially after four hours. They're going to be very excited. They were probably pretty, pretty evenly split, I think, slightly pro-Federer in this match, but Roddick had a lot of goodwill yeah. at Wimbledon. It was probably one of the, <laughs> the least pro-Federer crowds at a Grand Slam final ever, even if it was 60%. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a lot building up to that moment. And then, yeah, the way he misses that that shanked forehand on, uh, which he hadn't shanked a forehand like that all day. And then the way he does that on the match point is uh, still, still brutal. Yeah, he, he did, uh, he did shank a, uh, he didn't hit the forehand at love 15 cleanly either, but I agree. I mean, his forehand was so on point the entire match. And uh, in this game, it just, it just all crumbles. He was, and it was a war of attrition. Uh, you know, when it comes to focus and physicality, it's just who's going to be first to to play that slop, that sloppy game. And it was yeah. Roddick. Lo and behold, he never makes another grand slam final. Federer passes Sampras and goes way past Sampras. Eventually now he's at 20. Um, it's almost like we took Roddick for granted, though, uh, in terms of American tennis, because, I mean, he's on the heels of McEnroe Connors um, and then Agassi Sampras and then, you know, with like your couriers in there. And then it's almost like, oh, all we have is Andy Roddick now. And in, in hindsight, now American tennis doesn't have anything close to Andy Roddick. Not even remotely close. So I, I, I got to say, I was a big Andy Roddick fan. or He was definitely my favorite men's player, favorite relevant men's player. I had some obscure players I liked uh, a lot, but um, so it's kind of how I rolled. But Andy Roddick was of legitimate contenders was my favorite. And I think that he, he really did carry the torch single-handed for a long time and really kept American men's tennis with any sort of foot uh, near being contending on a world stage. And yes, James Blake, I think, was top five briefly, but... Blake, like, never won a Masters, never, like, got to a slam semi, like, was not really at that Roddick level, and um, it was only kind of there very briefly, but Roddick was, yeah, Roddick was a very good standard bearer for the sport, was very charismatic, which counted for a lot, he was a kind of classic celebrity, in a way, that American men's tennis has come nowhere close to having since then, I mean, I mean, like, Andy Roddick, like, hosted SNL after he won his grand slam like he was like he was that kind of guy who was like a public pop culture figure and that does matter it really does matter for like the relevance of of the sport in this country um or men's tennis at least women's tennis still doing great but men's tennis has not had that kind of figure since Andy Roddick even remotely close to it and so that does matter and that's why I like skip ahead to the end of his career or post career but like why him making hall of fame you know as a one slam winner was I thought kind of a complete shoe in because he really, he, he did make six grand semifinals. He lost five of them to Federer um, and beat, won the one against not Federer that he played against Ferrero in 03. And yeah, he, he, he was, he was that good. He was really one who kept American men's tennis afloat. And yes, no one really followed up after him. Yes. John Isner's had a 
solid career, but John Isner being the best America had for the better part of the last decade uh, represents a massive drop-off. That's another reason why this is a throwback match because it was an American man in a grand slam final. It hasn't happened since then. Uh, so it really was, it, you know, the end of an era in a lot of ways. And, and it's tough. And, and they, there, there was a lot of talk after this match. I remember on message boards about this jacket that Federer puts on in the trophy ceremony. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know how much BBC dwelt on it. I kind of skipped, skimmed through the trophy ceremony here, but yeah. they hit the number fifteen on the jacket, which was sort of his like champion jacket, like you know, a normal person would wear, uh, not normal person, but like a NBA player or a World Series winner would wear after they after they win the sort of championship hat type thing. Right. And then both thought that was like arrogant and presumptuous or whatever, or that it was like disrespectful and erotic. It was just trying to get like two and you have fifteen. I didn't really read it that way, but it does show just like that Roddick was really the last kind of guy of that sort of challenger class. I mean, the, the, I guess the current best analog is would be like a Vavrinka who's sort of floating around, but Vavrinka, honestly, I don't think was ever as relevant as Roddick was because Vavrinka's wins kind of come out of nowhere. He was never number one. He was, I don't, he was never even number two. I guess it might've been number three at some point. Um, was he ever number right. three even? He probably, he probably um, was. I want to say he was. Let's Either way, he was never number two. Let's put it that yeah. way. So Roddick was number two for a long time mm-hmm. and was number one briefly. So, you know, uh, I just think Roddick represented the sort of challenge that came and went. And also, he's the last guy to really have a short career and to quit when he yeah. plausibly had good tennis left. Um, right. When he, his body had not broken, was not totally gone. He had shoulder issues, but he yeah, was Yeah, I think he was losing that, that yeah. right shoulder. And, you know, when, when, you, when it comes to a big server like Roddick, I think he was concerned that his uh, – miles per hour was about to take a dip. But I also think that he was also somebody who just didn't want to hang around for the sake of hanging around when he yeah. thought that he could no longer legitimately contend for slams. And one of the matches I think really sent us a couple matches sent signals to him as he lost at Wimbledon that year in 2012 to Ferrer, which I think he saw as a really bad grass loss. When you talk about the kind of grass player he was and how Ferrer represents nothing that ever would have worked on grass in a previous era that Ferrer beat him pretty cleanly. I think that was a, a wake up sign that like, Hey, this game is kind of passing me by. And then at the Olympics later that summer, he got clobbered by Djokovic, also on grass, also I think on center court at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And those two back-to-back, I think, really were kind of – and even though he, like, he was still a solidly, solid top 20 player, he'd won two titles that summer in Eastbourne and Atlanta. Uh, so he was still like picking up money and, and hardware and doing good things on tour, but he just had this sort of like – he kind of thought there was a time to call it quits when he was 30 again, which is an old school thing to do. That's like when a lot of top players previously retired, we don't see that anymore. So Andy Roddick, I think is in a lot of ways, even though he's the same age as Federer roughly, I think uh, he's of a different generation in a lot of different ways. I think. Right. And uh, Roddick's still around the game. Got a great personality, funny. Um, He's coming back. He had been gone for a while. I mean, publicly, but the tennis channel coming back during this quarantine is my, uh, (laughs) unexpected silver lining of the quarantine yeah it's it's been a lot of fun he's also got a foundation and and him and and his wife uh are are have been very charitable throughout this uh covid19 pandemic uh last one ben i because you you mentioned the jacket and it just reminded me has there ever been a better federer outfit or let's keep it a wimbledon uh, or or maybe maybe everything i mean he had the pinstripes the gold the Classic Federer logo, uh, kind of like under his buttons on his collar. I, I really think that that's the best Federer has ever and Nike have ever put together. It's tough for me to say too much with Federer and Nike because they're all kind of similar. They're all white, and the details change a bit. But you're right; this was a very, very strong kit. I mean, it definitely there were no pants this year. I don't think the pants when the pants came around, they were 
they were a bit much when he would walk out there in the full length, like flannel, right. like the old school guys used to do, and then awkwardly to pull them off over his sneakers. Uh, you know, yeah, that, I think this is good Federer. This is classic Federer. And yeah, Federer, and again, like I say, it's still wild to me that like there's no other player who you would ever see, in, maybe the exception of the Williams sisters, um, who you would see like in what we thought was the end of their career. We really thought this was, this, like people did think this could be Federer's like swan song, like his last hurrah, his last contention, 09 Wimbledon, gets the one more. And especially he loses to Del Potro at the next slam. And maybe that's him getting ushered up by a new generation. Um, but then, yeah, but, but he's still here. Like 10 years later, he's still like the guy in so many ways in tennis, even if he's hurt and not number one now, he's still the face of the sport and still very much a relevant factor in the sport. And uh, that's, that's pretty cool. And that's pretty unprecedented. Yeah, no doubt about that. Anyway, I uh, really appreciate you coming on uh, and, you know, watching this match back with me and all that. No, I was glad to do it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. Stay safe. Be well. You too.